What I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Dame Anne Glover is a biologist and academic. She was Professor of Molecular Biology and Cell Biology at the University of Aberdeen before being named Vice Principal for External Affairs and Dean for Europe. In 2018, she joined the Principal's Senior Advisory Team at the University of Strathclyde. Anne has served as Chief Scientific Advisor to the President of the European Commission from 2012 to 2014 and from 2006 to 2011 was Chief Scientific Advisor for Scotland. She's an elected fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the Society of Biology, the Royal Society of Arts and the American Academy of Microbiology. She was awarded a DBE in 2015. But most importantly, of course, she's a patron of Humanists UK. And thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Delighted. Delighted to be here. Now, you've spent your life uh, not only in uh, public service, which we'll come on to, but in science as well. What was it that motivated you uh, first into the life sciences? I think I'm... I'm very curious. Another way of saying that would be very nosy. I just want to know how things work. I just I'm always fascinated by things. And if you speak to very young kids, I I think everyone's born like that. You know, you can always if you sit behind a, a parent with a child in a bus, it's always why is that happening? What's that? And so on. Well, that never left me. So it was for me a very natural progression. So uh, at school, that's what I was was interested in, a lot of things, to be honest, but mainly science, how things worked. And I didn't have to think too hard when I was considering what I wanted to do, you know, leave school, go to university, study science. The hard thing for me was to decide what discipline to study and, and how to narrow it down. And If I'm honest now, reflecting back, I think I would have loved to have studied physics. And the reason that I didn't do it, I was was very good at physics at school, but the reason I didn't do it is because I was convinced that you had to be an outstanding mathematician to be a good physicist. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I think for some disciplines in physics, yeah, I think it is true. But in a way, I wish I'd tried a bit harder. <laughs> no, no. But, but biology know. held an appeal, obviously. Biology held an attraction. It wasn't just that you couldn't do maths. <laughs> yeah. I, uh-huh. I mean, this might sound a little bit odd, but I've always been quite interested in things I couldn't see. So, I mean, you, you can't see things like fundamental particles or you can't see the Big Bang or and you, you can't see inside a cell, but you can imagine it. And so a lot of my scientific life and the way I've approached a lot of the the challenges and problems of of scientific research has been to try and imagine things, you know, like how how do the messages get sent inside your cells? How do tiny molecules that are made get from one side of a cell to another where they're needed without what we would see as a, you know, a, a some kind of traffic system, you know, that signposted you there. I mean, there are signposts, they're molecular ones, but it's it's imagining all of that. And, and actually, it, 
it reminds me there was a uh, it was a film that my brother took me to uh, when I was probably quite young. I, I think I would have been eight or nine, and it was. Um, I remember Raquel Welsh was in it and it was called The Fantastic Voyage. Raquel Welsh is the reason my brother took, took me to it. He's five <laughs> years older than me. so He wasn't in it for the science. <laughs> no, he wasn't. And he isn't a scientist. But he And it was about scientists being miniaturised and injected uh, into a human to do a job. And that, that was the clincher for me. Once I'd seen that, there was no going back. I wanted to be a scientist. Is it still your ambition to be miniaturized and injected into a person? <laughs> I wouldn't mind, actually. I mean, it would, it would, we can almost do that now. Um, you know, in many ways, you can get miniature cameras. You can inject yeah. them uh, probes and, and um, sensors that can report back. So we're kind of getting that way. And it'd but, be less scary than that film, which I seem to remember had had the bad guy dissolved by the stomach acid, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. That it was always was, a bad I, guy. That scared me as a child. Well, you see, it didn't scare but me. You I were fascinated thought, by it. I just thought it was an absolutely fantastic film. And although, okay, I'm no Raquel Welsh, and I wouldn't want to be Raquel Welsh, but it did strike me that here was a woman, you know, absolutely part of the team, and um, you know, she didn't. She didn't look overly odd. I mean, as a woman scientist, she just looked like a normal person. And and she doing a really interesting, exciting, yeah, a bit dangerous and risky. But I thought, well, you know, I could do that. So we'll come on to women in science, I think, later on, because it's an important theme. But just thinking for a moment a bit more about the the appeal that you said things you can't see held for you um, and still do, presumably. Mm-hmm. What, what was the nature of that appeal? Was it is it the scope that it gives you for your imagination or is it a sense of mystery about it? What, what is it that you think at the heart of that attraction? Um, it's It's sort of. Well, it's excitement and it's also it's almost a lack of boundary. I mean, if. If you can see things in life, you see boundaries and, you know, you, things are finite that, that you see generally or, or in, in everyday life, you know, a road or even a view has a horizon and a boundary. But if you think about things like, um, you know, if you look at our wider universe, what we can all go time traveling by going outside at night and looking up at the night sky and you're looking at light that's taken you know, eons to, to come to us and reach reach our eyes and, and be imaged in our eyes. But you always think what's beyond, or I, I do, I'm always interested in um, what's beyond what I can see. And it's maybe because there's almost infinite, well, there's, not, there's so many possibilities right. in that. And it, and it doesn't seem, nobody can tell you you're right or wrong. It's up to you to be able to demonstrate that you know, there is something there that can be validated by study or evidence or experimentation or whatever. And I quite like that, you know. I like uncertainty, actually. That's very interesting. It's, it, it's interesting for itself what you say, but it's also interesting that it's overlapped with a lot of what other guests have said, especially one person who is an ancient historian and was talking exactly That's- the same way about all the possibilities. You know, you look at a site, you look at the, you don't know who the people were, what they were doing, yeah. but you've got to investigate and, and you know, your imagination takes you into those different possibilities and nobody knows for sure yet, you know. No, and there's there's a lot of imagination um, in, in science, scientific research. I think a lot of people would presume that there wasn't much room for that, 
that somehow it's very rigid, but it's the opposite of that because you can hypothesize anything you like. Uh, you then have to devise a way of being able to demonstrate that, you know, beyond reasonable doubt that what you are, you know, that the evidence will back up what your what your hypothesis is. And I can see that also for something like ancient history or whatever, because you weren't there. And, you know, so, so you have to try and take what evidence you've got and then build up what seems like a plausible picture. And that that's very, I mean, it's research. I think that is just research. But the, the bit about uncertainty that I love is that, you know, you can experiment and hypothesize and get your evidence. And you can say that, okay, I am fairly sure that this is happening because of that. But there's no absolutes to it. So I, I remember w w once it was actually when, when I was a chief scientific advisor for Scotland and the first minister was Alex Salmond and I was standing down from my post at the end of my uh, six-year term or whatever and we had talked a lot about certainty and uncertainty because I think scientists embrace uncertainty whereas politicians lose it they, they really it's a threat and yeah. uh, a big danger for them and I always used to talk to him about you know that you could never be absolutely sure in science. And he said, okay, there must be one thing in science that you're sure about. And I said, no, there, no, there's really nothing. So he said, oh, please, it's your last day, you know, give me one thing. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, if, there's one, if there would be one thing, I would say that it's that nothing can fa travel faster than the speed of light. And he said, well, there, that wasn't too hard, was it? And I, I said, well, okay. Do you know, and this is true, Andrew, the next morning I woke up and I was listening, it was the Today programme, and it was something like half six in the morning, and I heard that um, that uh, scientists in the Grand Sasso Laboratory in Italy had just found a particle that travelled faster than the speed of light. <laughs> and I, I couldn't believe it. It was almost as if, you know, I had I'd deliberately thrown out this challenge into the cosmos and then it came <laughs> flying back the next morning saying, not so smart, Glover, you know, you, you shouldn't... Um, you shouldn't say that. In fact, it was demonstrated that they hadn't found a particle faster than the speed of light. But, you know, there you go. But the possibility was there. Mm. And when you, I mean, you mentioned there your time as um, scientific advisor to, to the Scottish government. You also spent time as a uh, scientific advisor and a sort of ambassador for science as well to the, um, was it Barroso who was the? Yeah, it, the it was Joseph yeah. Manuel Barroso was the, the president of the European Commission then. Yeah. And what did you in the same way, really, that we were thinking about the things that took you into science. What took you into public science, as it were, or public service? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I was very lucky. I had a terrific research career, as very successful. Our lab had a, a great reputation. And I, I suppose I was I was coming to the age of about 50, I, I guess. And I thought, well, you know, this is great. We're doing really well. I'd also... At that time, I'd also set up a company with colleagues on the back of my own research. So it was the idea of making knowledge useful. So it wasn't just generating knowledge, you know, for my own pleasure, but it was making sure that that knowledge uh, had value for citizens, uh, you know, in the widest sense, because mostly research is paid for by public funding. 
And I have a very, very strong feeling that the public should get benefit from that. And okay, you could set up a company. Um, the, the one that we set up was around environmental biotechnology. So a way of cleaning up contaminated land sustainably. Um, so that was what that was about. And then, so I'd done that. If I'm honest, didn't really fit very well into the commercial life. And Why you know, not? Um, basically, because people aren't like people who want to fund you, they, they couldn't care less whether the anything about the technology. They just want to know, OK, bottom line is how much money can I make out of this? Right. And I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not at all adverse. I mean, I'm not. You're not I'm against not, money. Not, <laughs> I, I don't mind if somebody wants to uh, to give me money. But that wasn't what was driving me. What was driving me was cleaning up contaminated land. And, um, you know, so not digging and dumping it. So I never really understood. It's hard to work with people where your motivation is so different. Is it? Is it? Yeah. You, you want a shared so. motivation with people. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when we were trying to get funding, which we got we got funding quite easily, actually. But all the time I was making presentations, I mean, I was trying to do the elevator pitch, you know, and so I had it honed down to really a few sentences but then people would always say, and, you know, what do you want to get out of this? And I'd say, well, this is a great platform. You know, what we could do is we could also develop sensors to detect X, Y and Z and so on. They would go, oh, yeah, OK. <laughs> and, and one of my collaborators who went on to found another multi-million pound business, he was very successful. Um, they asked him, what do you want to get out of it? And he said, I want to make shed loads of money. And they said, great stuff. And immediately um, there was a, a kind of meeting of mind or aspiration. Right. So, yeah, it's just the language is different. It's it wasn't for me. But but what I, I was interested in was taking the knowledge that you generate. And this became obvious when I from that spin out company thinking that policy needs to be different about how we deal with environmental contamination you know, you can't just dig it and dump it. You're you're just, you know, hiding your head in the sand, really. It's a problem, a legacy you're leaving for others, which is not a good idea. So I started thinking about policy and how how policy is made. And I had no experience whatsoever whatsoever of government or the political environment. But I it was it was actually a very good friend of mine he saw the advert for Scotland having a chief scientific advisor, encouraged me to apply, and I got that job. And then after that, I thought, you know, the, the European Commission just happened to be, timing was right. They were also looking for the first time to have a chief scientific advisor to the president of the commission. Yeah. Um, and, and so I just applied for that and, um, and was successful in getting it. But, you know, it was a completely different uh, at that time, a, a European Union with 28 member states is a much harder vehicle to to move its course or or to convince people than it is a single government. Yes. Um, you know, so, for example, if Alex Salmond was persuaded of something by me as chief scientific advisor for Scotland, he'd say, OK, let's do it. You know, and this is how we'll do it. But President Barroso would say, OK, I'm persuaded. How do I then persuade 28 mm. member states? And, you know, I would sort of say, well, I think that's your job. You know, <laughs> uh, you know how to do that. I, 
I don't know how to do that. And so he would sort of think, well, there's probably other things that I need to pay attention to more, which is a pity because the European Commission, unlike national governments, is an organization that has long-term thinking that's possible. So they could have been an absolute stellar example of evidence-based or evidence-led or evidence-influenced policymaking that was robust, efficient, effective, reliable. Whereas I think in national governments, because of electoral cycles, it's just never going to be possible because once you're elected, you're thinking about the next election. Whereas the commission had the possibility to be different. Um, But it wasn't in the end. Were you disappointed by the uh, approach? um, No, I I mean, I can't say I was really disappointed at all, but I mean, it was unusual. That's, that's certainly the case. And, um, but I I loved working at the commission, partly because of the, you know, with 28 member states, you've got this massive diversity of thinking of capacity as well around science, engineering and technology. And I think that in many respects, there was a, a much greater openness to how evidence might be used in policymaking. I think the difficulty was that, you know, you catapult somebody into the commission and the commission was not prepared to have a chief scientific advisor. So right. I think, you know, if I was ad- advising someone in this, I'd say you need to do an awful lot of work beforehand with the existing infrastructure in order to be able to absorb and have take value from a chief scientific advisor you know someone can't just parachute in and then suddenly everything changes in in fact the normal and it's quite a normal reaction i i would be the same as you're suspicious you think what's this what's the chief science what will they do you know they'll be interfering with what i do and you know i know what i'm up to i've done it for years that that sort of thing mm. so it was very a lot of the just the structure was was a challenge, but there was a lot of good support as well. Um, but maybe the model wasn't quite right for something like the European Commission. It's uh, you know to have a single CSA. A uh, lot I, of policy jobs have failed at the Commission level. It's a, yeah. it's a dif- difficult level of uh, of governance, isn't it? To, it to, is. To it's very out. difficult because you know sometimes, and this is going to sound very anti-democratic, but you know, sometimes you have to push things and you have to push things through, even although, so in other words, not get agreement from 28 different member states. Sometimes there has to be a kind of strong leadership that says, I know there's resistance. I know that you're uneasy about this. You know, we'll we'll help and support you, but we have to go with this. I mean, an example what sort of, that, of areas? Yeah, give me some examples, because that's an interesting uh, idea that you've got there. Um, I'm sure you do support democracy in other <laughs> in other spheres. But what, yeah. what, what, what is it you think is important enough? I guess you would say it's the important things that you push would push through in this way. Yeah, well, climate change is a great example. Right. Because it's just so vital that you should override we, some. We do, yeah, we, you just, you know, we just have to deal with it. It's such a a huge crisis. And it's it's not like it's some way in the distance. I, I think that constantly and unfortunately, week by week, month by month, we hear of other environmental disasters and things. And because of their frequency, um, you know, they're often weather events, which is not climate change, but 
the frequency of those weather events continuing to happen really is because our climate has already changed. And the difficulty for politicians is to be to, to get fast movement on that. Uh, and if I think of something, something like uh, in the UK, just before COP26, there was the issue around the Campbell oil field, you know, would that be developed or not? Well, I think, you know, anyone will say who's looking at the evidence, we actually need to keep almost all of the fossil fuel that we know about in the ground if, if we're to maintain a future climate that is sustainable for the human population that we currently have. It's not a matter of taking it out more slowly or it's a matter of keeping it in the ground. And we'll always need tiny amounts probably of, of hydro, you know, of oil and things for incredibly valuable things like um, plastic hip joints or something, mm, something yeah, like yeah, that, you know, yeah. something that, but um, we burn it at the moment. We, I mean, it's people on other planets might be looking at us and laughing at us thinking, gosh, they've got this stuff that that's killing their planet and they're actually burning it, you know, just to drive around in or to heat their houses and things. And do you think, to come back to the original point of it, do you, do you think that that's something that democracy can't cope with? You don't think there's a democratic solution to that sort of problem? Is that one of the things that you do believe, <laughs> that there are some things like that that can't be democratically addressed? I think democracy, uh, it doesn't make it easy, if I'm, if I'm honest, because... I, I learned this from many politicians, actually, in speaking to them. And, you know, they're complicated creatures, politicians, and some of them have their heart in the right place. I mean, they're there because they want to make a very positive difference. It's the same reason that I'm a scientist. You know, I want to make a difference with the knowledge I generate. Some politicians are like that. And if you speak to them about, well, why don't you... Um, I, rem I remember in the European Union, in fact, speaking to a politician who was uh, who understood that, say, GM technology was safe and it was an effective option to rapidly breed new varieties of plant that might be able to withstand drought or to be able to grow without fossil fuel-based fertilizers, for example. And he said, "I know, I know all of that," but he said, as a politician mostly I follow. So I, I will follow what the public want or what the party want. I hardly ever lead. And he said, sometimes politicians have one or two issues during their entire career as a politician where they will lead, not follow. And he said, some don't have even any. They just follow all the time. And he said, sadly, they're often quite successful mm. by just following. But if you're leading, what, what you're effectively trying to do is you're trying to stifle the debate, the questioning, the, you know, you, you have to have some convincing argument, like, here is the evidence. You know, we have to do this by taking painful measures. It will hurt. You know, some things will hurt, even just because it's a change. And sometimes people don't like change, but we have to do it. And I don't think that's necessarily anti-democratic, um, but I think it takes strong inspirational leaders um, who have credibility to be able to take people along with them. And 
we've all met those people where, and I have in the past where I've said, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. And they said, I, I know I, it's clear you don't want to do it, but you know, almost that, that phrase, trust me, just trust me on this. And I, cause I, I really think it will work. And if, if you do trust someone, if they have credibility, if they've been honest and transparent with you, you will follow them. And that's not anti-democratic. No, no I see. I, I think it's, yeah, actually, I think it's sens- sensible. You know, you, you cannot have, uh, yeah, you, you, yeah, not everybody can be involved in the perfect decision making and the, the outcome that suits everyone. It's just a, a pipe dream. Is credibility an important value to you? You see yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that, I know that that confronted me a number of times because I understood very well, if you look at Ipsos Mori do an annual poll of the veracity index. Yes. And um, I think, I'm not quite sure who's at the top now, but it's nurses, I think, you know, nurses, teachers. Librarians not- are at the top this year. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I trust my librarians. Yeah, exactly. um, so you, we can sort of understand why those people are at the top. But, you know, always above 80 percent scientists, you know, professors, engineers, technologists. Um, and so we do enjoy credibility. But it was clear to me that if you look at government scientists and as a chief scientific advisor, I would immediately from one day to the next go to being you know, a, a university scientist to a government mm. scientist as chief scientific advisor, you're, the level of trust in you drops. You know, I haven't, I haven't changed or done anything, but people just think a government scientist because I suppose some of the, the lack of trust that citizens have in government rubs off on you if you're associated with government. So that worried me. And I... I remember saying it, it was, well, to President Barroso when we were talking about the possibility of my being his chief scientific advisor. And I said, I would like to be described as an as the independent chief scientific advisor. And he said, that's, that's not possible because you'll be paid for by the commission. You'll be my chief scientific advisor. And I said, okay, th- this is how I see it. If, if I'm called independent, and you give me the ability to be able to speak to the evidence rather than any political imperative, I will have a lot of credibility and you will benefit from that. Because when I agree or say, here's the evidence that supports what President Barroso might be saying, you you will benefit from my credibility, which as a scientist just de facto is higher than yours as a politician. But if I don't have that, then you you will lose out all the time because anything I say, people will say she's just saying that because mm. you know she's his scientific advisor. And it was hard for him. I mean, that was an example where he trusted me and he said, Well, I'm I'm not happy about it, but we'll go with it. And he did he did say, but promise me one thing. He said, promise me that you'll never ever embarrass me. <laughs> so I said, well, I can't honestly promise you that, but I'll promise you that I'll never knowingly embarrass you. And that's that's the way we left it. But credibility, you can't do, I mean, as a scientist, if you don't have any credibility, you need to hang up your boots, I think. 
I guess we're living at a time right now when the credibility of government scientists is of life and death importance to many of us. Yeah, uh, it, it's a it is a demonstration um, of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, I don't envy. Um, you know, if we think at UK level, Patrick Valance is UK government uh, CSA and Chris Whitty is the chief medical advisor. They stand up there next to the prime minister often. And, and that's, a, that's a very, I would find that a very uncomfortable place to be because, you know, you, you're talking about the evidence, but you're also being used as ammunition. I see... Um, you know, if we think over the last 18 months or so, the press trying to get the scientists to say that the politicians are not doing what they advise and, mm. and so on. So they're just using them as, as ammunition. Mm. And of course, similarly, the politicians are using them in order to justify what measures they are taking. And some of the scientific evidence is used in the current pandemic planning and some of it isn't. I mean, if you if you just got a group of scientists to decide on the basis of the evidence what to do, it would be different measures than we currently take. But the politicians have to also think about economy, you know, all of these much wider issues. So it's not it's not a it's not an easy job. It's a very difficult one. But if we didn't have the evidence and the science to help guide us, um, we would be in a very, very much worse state than we we currently are in. Loop back to some extent to where we started. You um, mentioned the importance of uh, uh, the role modelling of Raquel Welsh, <laughs> at least to some extent, of being a, a, yeah. a visible woman in science, albeit in, in, in fictional science. Um, so perhaps uh, before we finish, you could just say something about that, because I've, I've heard you before talk about the importance of women in science, the importance of women role models in science. I think that's a pretty fundamental value with you as well. It, it's it's absolutely, absolutely fundamental. You know, I was you know, in thinking about our conversation today, I was thinking what really matters to me. And the thing that matters to me almost more than anything else, and it's all encompassing, is fairness. Um, I mean, I, I know that, you know, my parents were still alive. They would tell you that, the, you know, I was always a toddler bleating. It's not fair. <laughs> and we we all have experienced that thing where something happens in life and you know that you did something right and it's misrepresented and and you know it isn't fair and well that's never ever left me and to see the the disregard in our society not just for women uh, but it's for anyone who doesn't conform to the the standard you know I, I, i'm being very brutal here but the kind of white male stereotype and I'm thinking about UK society and any difference at all is not tolerated well. And yet diversity is absolutely at the center of success because, you know, whether it's in science or, uh, you know, or in health services or transport gurus or whoever it is to come up with the innovation, the really creative stuff, you need different approaches. And, you know, I've had loads of 
male PhD students, female PhD students, in between PhD students, everything. And they approach problems differently and it's very refreshing and we all win. That's the, the, the wonderful thing about it. You're not, by including a woman, you're not excluding someone else, you know, or, you know, by bringing together different ethnic backgrounds or people with different disabilities or whatever it is, all you're doing is offering greater diversity of looking at a challenge or a problem. And so it's important to me we include everyone. Curiosity, the infinite possibilities of things you can't see, uncertainty, making knowledge useful, making a difference, and the vital importance of diversity to success. Thank you, Anne, for telling us what you believe. Thank you. That's that's it in a nutshell. You've got it, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> that was Anne Glover telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the eighth episode of the fourth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining up as a supporter or a member. You can also find out more about humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available online and at all good bookshops. <laughs>